Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call from ACG Analytics. As we have been saying on many calls and writing about for months, literally since the beginning of the year, it's a macro year. It's been a big couple weeks. I want to thank the ACG team for their great analytical work, calling a close election, calling that it will not be resolved soon, and calling a very tight Senate race. With those thoughts in mind, as I turn it over to Chris Zerwinski, our lead international analyst, and the rest of the ACGA team, Bart Oostervelt joined us from Moody's Sovereign Risk in London, uh, takes their lead on Europe and EM. Of course, our intrepid head of research, John East. We have two macro themes that we have to watch over the next several months. What will Donald Trump do during the remainder of his presidency? And then where's Vice President Biden going to take us? What will he undo or try to undo from President Trump's legacy? And what will he try to get done? With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Sawinski. Thanks, David. I want to start, as always, in Washington, D.C., Senate, really the last remaining race, although the presidential election has not been officially recognized by the Trump administration. The final pieces of the election that we're monitoring are the Georgia runoffs. The Republican Senate candidate did not reach the threshold, and so therefore on January 5th, they're going to be, voters are going to be heading back to the polls. John East, we wrote this week in the, in the macro note that we expect both Republican senators, Purdue and Loeffler, to hold their seats. What are the really the key dynamics that you're looking at in that race? I assume it's turnout, but how can we look at that race and get a better insight into what will actually happen? Well, we have to look at turnout, and that's really it. It's turnout, turnout, turnout. Now, we have on the one side a very charismatic Democratic nominee, Warnock. He is an African-American pastor and appeals to not only the Democratic base in Georgia, which now realizes the power it has and narrowly captured Georgia for President-elect Biden. And so I would expect that the enth- there's enthusiasm, and particularly so in Atlanta and the Atlanta suburbs. That will help uh, John Austin who is the Democratic nominee in the other race. It's against Senator Purdue. It is very difficult for me to believe that someone goes to the polls and only votes for one of the two elections or votes Republican in one and Democrat in another. So quite frankly, two Democratic nominees and the two Republican nominees are tied at the hip. And anything that happens in one race can affect the other race. And so assuming that both win, what does that put us at at the Senate? That would be a 52-seat majority, meaning that in this election cycle, Republicans would have only lost net one seat. A split government. Before we get to that conversation, I'll bring it back to Trump because we have, you know, two months left of the Trump administration. There's a lot that can happen in two months, as we've seen, and I suspect that the Trump administration is going to do everything it can to cement its legacy in a variety of different areas, including regulatory rulemaking processes, John. I suspect that there could be some action in the realm of foreign policy and trade. John, why don't you you talk about, you know, what are the things you're looking at domestically from the president in the next two months? 
Well, you look at the rules that are in the final stages of completion at various agencies, and there will be an effort to get those out the door. It does not appear that there's going to be a real way for Congress to use the Congressional Review Act, which has rarely been used but was used when President Trump first came to office. That allows an incoming Congress and president to cancel the rules that have occurred in the waning days of a presidential administration uh, when there's a change of power. And it's unwieldy. It prevents an agency from engaging in a substantially similar rulemaking in the area, again, for I think it's 10 years. So it's a very blunt tool. I don't think it can be used. So there'll be every effort, and there is at the end of every administration, to finalize rulemaking. The president's spokespeople in various guises have said that the president is reading executive orders. They mean that they are reading executive orders. There's no clear indication of what they are, but I expect it to be more along the lines of Buy America and other protections against competition from certain visa holders or whatnot. But really, quite frankly, it's a black box. It's not clear what those aides are really referring to, and I'm sure there's disagreement within the administration on how to act. We also have a potential government shutdown. So Congress is really focused on that, and that is going to have to garner the president's attention at some point. Now, where I want to move to now, John, what are the congressional priorities over the next two months? I guess the, the, the main point I want to touch on here is stimulus. Is there cause for optimism that there will be some sort of pandemic relief package before the new Congress is sworn in and then before the new president is sworn in? There's really no great cause for optimism. Shortly after the election, Senate Majority Leader McConnell said that he was interested in passing a package during this lame duck session of Congress, which expires on the 31st of December, although I don't anticipate Congress will stay in quite that long. There's not a lot of time, and both Senate Majority Leader McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have reiterated their respective positions where we've been stuck since August, so that's not that hopeful a sign. There's not a lot of time. We have a government, potential government shutdown on December 12th, so that really has to occupy a lot of Congress's time. There's still decisions to be made as to how long we get funding and at what levels. So, And those decisions are pretty difficult for Congress, which is divided on the issue, including within the Democratic caucus on the House side. It was about 50-50 a division as to whether we should have a continuing resolution or fund the government at new fiscal levels until the end of the fiscal year next year, September 30th. So quite frankly, we don't know who's negotiating that. The White House is preoccupied with its own internal battles and legal suit, and you still have to get some past McConnell, we're sort of in a, in a way a worse position than we were before the election because before the election, we at least knew who was going to be in the negotiating room or who was in the negotiating room. Now, I, I wanted to touch on something. We didn't really answer the question before. What does it mean to have a 52 Senate seat majority or even a 51 Senate seat majority if somehow Georgia goes one way on one election and one way on the other? That means that the cabinet picks and other nominations which need Senate confirmation, both executive and judicial, will have to get past Senator McConnell. So a White House under President Biden would have to broker those nominations, at least for the first two years, presumably, unless there's some unexpected death or retirement or something, with the Senate Republican majority. And it would also mean that a lot of progressive nominees probably can't get through. It means that between now and 
the resolution of the Georgia elections, which might take some days after election night, that it's going to be very difficult for Biden to try to reach out to potential cabinet picks because we're not sure what the posture of the Senate is going to be. Because if you do have you know, Vice President Harris breaking a tie and giving control of the Senate to Democrats, there's going to be a battle within the Democratic Party to get more progressive nominations through. But it means in a 52 or 51 Senate majority, that we're not going to see rules changes, like getting rid of the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court. And it also means that the centrist, people like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and maybe a handful of some other lawmakers, are really going to be kingmakers because their votes are gettable by either side and they will be able to extract concession in order for their vote to be cast on one side of the ledger or the other. Taking all that into account, then, what do you think are the first priorities that Biden works towards in, you know, let's say, like the first six months of this presidency? Well, if we don't have pandemic relief, which is a real possibility, then that is going to be on the table yet again. But we're still going to have the same dynamics. We're probably still going to have a Speaker Pelosi, and we are still going to have a Senate Majority Leader McConnell. So someone's going to have to break that logjam. No better person to do it, probably, than President Biden. But that's, that will be on the table and it means that other priorities will get bumped down. I had gone into this uh, several months ago believing that the number one priority for Democrats in January was going to be, in addition to you know staffing up a Biden administration and those usual transition issues, but in terms of legislation, was going to be some type of energy infrastructure package. Some of that could be included potentially in pandemic relief, but that's not McConnell's preferred route. So I think that's a lot more difficult than, say, if someone like Democratic leader of the Senate were the majority leader. So that, I think, is going to be the second order of business. Now, from a foreign policy viewpoint as well, Bart, I mean, do you see anything with respect to increased sanctions on Iran, you know, just considering that President-elect Biden is likely to, you know, take a more conciliatory approach towards Iran? I think what President-elect Biden will try to do early on in his administration is talk to European parties to the JCPOA and find a way to come to some sort of successor agreement that the U.S. will not be part of, more along the lines of the JCPOA that the Trump administration pulled out of. So I think that's first on the agenda. I think as a side effect of those talks, you'll see some more humanitarian relief going to Iran. So I don't think the prospect of heavy sanctions is there at the moment. What about, you know, for the remainder of President Trump's term. I mean, you, you don't see him trying to provoke or increase sanctions on whether it's Iran or any other foreign adversary. I mean, you don't see that as, you know, a logical escalation over the next two months. It'd be surprising. You know, it's hard to tell what the administration might have up its sleeve. And certainly Iran and Iran proxies like Hezbollah are engaged in behavior that might be sanctioned. We don't really know enough about where that might occur. Uh, understood. The point I was just trying to make is that there's no obvious cause for escalation in any of these fronts, at least in my view, and it seems like in your view. So, you know, then that leaves some of the trade actions that I think President could continue with. I think that he does want to cement, like I said, his legacy on China. We do have an upcoming deadline in a month. The Hong Kong Autonomy Act required the U.S. government to identify individuals who are working to limit the autonomy of Hong Kong. And now there's a mid-December, I think the 15th deadline under the Act for the United States to identify financial institutions that are currently doing business with those individuals and potentially sanction them. 
that's something that we have about a month left on the fuse. And at least to my knowledge, Bart, most of these financial institutions have done a pretty good job of limiting or reducing their exposure to these individuals. And so, you know, on that front, I'm sure there are some institutions that, you know, are easy picking. But at the same time, it seems to me like there's not just going to be some broad sanction salvo, although I am expecting something, whether it be arbitrary or not. I mean, is that kind of one thing to say about this topic is that it carries bicameral, bipartisan support and would be eagerly picked up by the incoming Biden administration. It's not a, a topic that generates heavy domestic political debate in the U.S., whether, you know, what side of the Hong Kong debate to stand on. So that being said, sanctions involving a Chinese bank quickly get to the Chinese government. So there'll certainly be sanctions, whether they'll also be impactful or just very carefully crafted. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and then, you know, the final thing I'd say on that is that today is the deadline for ByteDance to divest of TikTok, and we haven't seen anything. And based on all of the conversations I've had and, quite frankly, all the reporting that's out there, it seems like TikTok and ByteDance haven't heard anything from the United States government either. So they're seeking, you know, an additional an extension of the time frame, and we should hear, I would imagine, more about this later today. It'll be interesting to see what, what the Trump administration chooses to do. From a foreign policy standpoint, I think that largely in the first six months, Biden's going to be looking to, you know, mend some of these relationships that Trump has frayed, um, particularly with, you know, North America, Canada, I think, more so than President Trump actually did have a good relationship with President AMLO um, in Mexico by the end of this. So, you know, that begs the question, does he unilaterally lift some of these tariffs that the United States currently has in place on allies like Canada and Mexico, I think, particularly about you know, steel and aluminum tariffs. I know that the Biden transition team is, is reviewing those policies based upon you know the names that I see that are put forward. I, I tend to think that there there are more protectionists in those teams than you know you would say there were in the, in the Trump administration. And that's to say that there's a reversal back to Democrats, the party of protectionism. There are a lot of labor advocates, and and I suspect that that makes it harder Biden to unilaterally lift some of these tariffs that are put in place ostensibly for national security reasons but really in order to help U.S. industries. So I wouldn't say, you know, at the moment that I'm optimistic on that front. I think that you're probably going to see a continued status quo for the first six months or so in many of those areas. Bart, maybe an area that's different because the timelines and, and there are pushing their catalysts that perhaps will force Biden to come to the negotiating table is the relationship with Europe. We have mm-hmm. U.S., U.K., trade negotiations. We have U.S.-EU trade negotiations. We have broadly digital tax negotiations, which focus on Europe. And we also have the Boeing Airbus dispute. Those are four issues that are, that are big ticket issues that I believe Europe has you know, been waiting on in expectation of new administration in January. From a 30,000 foot level, I mean, on each of those issues, what do you think the impact of the Biden presidency is? One, let's note that your know, tensions can be rapidly de-escalated on these topics. The thorniest one, I think, is digital tax and big tech. I think Europe is on a very different path when it comes to, to dealing with the big tech companies. You know, the, you see many senior policymakers talking out loud about breaking them up and, you know, gatekeeper companies and terminology and the debate in Europe is just at a very different point than where it is in the U.S. And I think that's in terms of difficulty and difference of opinion, that's probably the most complicated one. There's a lot of bipartisan enthusiasm for the prospect of a trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K., but that can not happen if the EU-UK relationship is a complete dumpster fire. So the EU and the UK are stalemate on their post-Brexit trade relationship talks. 
uh, and they, they keep repeating the same moves. That is going to get resolved one way or another in the next few weeks, uh, probably with extensions of the status quo. That leaves that relationship kind of in a difficult position. And you know, while the Good Friday Accords may, be, may not be safe after the House of Lords sent back the internal markets bill, it doesn't create a very stable platform on which to negotiate you know, a U.S.-U.K. trade relationship. That may well go you know, well into next year for all the enthusiasm there is on the Hill and I suspect in the incoming administration to, to get that done quickly. On other topics, you know, NATO trade disputes, I, I think there's very limited ambition on both sides when it comes to picking up trade talks. And I think that's a few years away. Nobody's really talking about resurfacing TTIP or anything like it. So I think that's far away. Taking down some tariffs, especially national security-based tariffs, I think would be a sign of goodwill. But I think the goodwill can be achieved just by announcing a review. Administration comes in and says, we'll do a full review of any tariffs that were levied by the past administration based on national security concerns. We'll reevaluate those concerns, and then we'll see what we do with the tariffs. I think that generates also in the relationship with the Canadians sufficient. I think that that's a very likely scenario, too, quite frankly. I I think that they will initiate that broad-based review. Yeah, I mean, and you already mentioned approaching the the Europeans in order to, you know, talk about the Iran situation and, you know, what can be done in terms of containment there. So just add that to the list. Bart, let's talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, from a geopolitical lens here. Peace deal was brokered by Russia and Turkey. Seems on its face to be a strategic victory for Erdogan. Do you believe that? Yeah, that's certainly how it's being celebrated in Turkey and, and in Azerbaijan. And that's certainly also the, the mood in Armenia is that, you know, a war was lost. It's causing a lot of domestic political tensions in Armenia, as, as everybody will have seen. It's an unstable region. What is notable is that the U.S. and the EU were not visibly involved or engaged. You know, and it's one thing for the EU to be asleep at the switch at the stuff that affects the surroundings. It's it's another thing for the U.S. to not be engaged. Given the proximity to key pipelines that are important for the gas supply to Germany and, and elsewhere in Europe, it's surprising that this was left almost entirely to Putin and Erdogan to resolve. And that may well cause problems down the road because they clearly did not have the interests of the EU gas market, for example, in mind when brokering this deal. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.